Welcome to the Emerging Markets Growth Leaders Podcast with True. On this show, we speak with founders, investors, and industry leaders from exciting businesses across Asia Pacific, the Middle East, and Africa. We ask them to share their fascinating stories and invaluable market insights and experiences across e-commerce, fintech, and many other growth industries in some of the most fascinating locations in the world. My name is Sam Randall, and I am a partner at True Search, the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have helped tech startups throughout their growth phase from pre-seed to post-IPO in both developing and emerging markets. We have over 350 search professionals in offices spanning North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. This week, we are delighted to welcome Akshay Chopra, Head of Innovation and Product Design at Visa. Based in Dubai, Akshay covers the Samia region, which comprises of over 90 distinct markets in Central Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Akshay joins us to share his unique and fascinating insights on payments and innovation across these regions with a focus on fintech in the Middle East. Akshay, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's it's really wonderful to have you here. Um, really looking forward to this conversation. But uh, firstly, how have you how have you been keeping? Thanks, and thanks for having me, Sam, and welcome to Dubai, I should say. Um, and yes, I've been keeping well. It's uh, you know, COVID nineteen has wrought havoc in many aspects of everyone's life, but uh, you know, it's important to stay positive and walk through this. So yeah, I'm keeping well. Thank you. Okay. And Dubai seems to be managing it fairly well. Um, what, what sort of impact has it had on sort of working? Are you all working from home at the moment? Um, what's the sort of impact been across the, the, the country for you? Yeah, we were, we were really lucky, actually. Like, I'm lucky to work for a company like Visa because pretty much at the outset, I'm talking like March, April, our CEO came out and said two things. One is that uh, all Visa employees will have a, the option to work from home, whether it's the offices are open or not if you want to work from home till december no questions asked work from home till december and, and as it uh, played out ultimately most of our offices were shut just being careful and respectful of people's health all the way through december and the second thing he says which again just shows great leadership is he says that uh, in 2020 there were going to be no covid related layoffs in visa and they stuck to that uh, word so you know when we were going through all the ups and downs with the markets crashing and travels freezing and all that happening. Uh, at least that was not one thing we worried about. So these kind of things have helped me, my team, and a lot of my colleagues actually get through this time quite well, thanks to the leadership in this company. It's been interesting to see how different leaders have um, dealt with the management of their company through, through it. And I think um, it, it's it seems like the best responses have been pretty much the most clear and the ones that come in sort of really, really early with a really clear message, you know, and it's been uh, sort of, you know, similar to, to, to where I work. There was a, uh, you know, so a lot of messaging very early on, very clear. This is something we're all in together. So it's great to hear that that's been working for you, for you guys too. Um, so I, I'm keen to really explore um, the, 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 the Middle East payments, FinTech in general. Um, I'd love to hear your opinions on, on, um, on that. But what, what I'd love to do first is perhaps if you can tell me a little bit about um, sort of what you do with Visa and a little bit about your journey into, into Visa, just, you know, keen to get a bit of the backstory. Sure, thanks. Um, so what I do at Visa is I am the Vice President and Head of Innovation and Design for a region we call SEMIA, which is Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa. So I'm responsible to lead this function in actually 92 markets and 92 of what I think are the most exciting markets globally 
um, you know, starting from Central and Eastern Europe all the way through some of the emerging markets in Central Asia, of course, the Middle East, which is so exciting, and then the entire African continent. Um, so that's uh, I run a team of people who run um, the innovation and design functions. Our job is to work with our clients, like the banks, uh, merchants, but also the internet companies, um, the wallets and fintechs, of course, and even the governments in these regions to build a future of commerce that is more seamless, more secure, and more inclusive. And uh, a lot of our kit, the way we do these things is based on uh, sprint methodologies that use design thinking and agile methods and all of that. And uh, we have um, a fairly large team of designers, developers, engineers uh, spread across these locations that do that. Um, and we serve these 92 markets out of three hubs. One is Dubai, where I work, which is our flagship for this region, where we have a beautiful innovation center where you know, you're welcome to come. And then there's a innovation studio in Moscow, which serves our Russian market. And then uh, we're soon opening actually next month, pretty much a innovation studio in Nairobi, which will be dedicated for our sub-Saharan African markets. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I do here. Any questions on that or should I talk about my background? Uh, let's talk about your background a bit. We, we, I might come back to a couple of questions on that, but keen to get keen to get sort of the journey into that as well. As, as well. Yeah, it's, it's you see, like this, these kind of roles, the ones I have, didn't exist a few years ago, right? And uh, that's when when people ask me, or when you know, when I, I started working in the mid two thousands, and when people used to ask these questions about, so what do you want to do five years from now, or you know, what's your ten year vision for your career? And unfortunately, a lot of people still ask young people these questions man, you won't even know what opportunities exist, what roles exist, what skills are in demand five years from later. How can you possible, possibly have a, uh, you know, your future CV designed to have those roles? I think that mentality might um, limit some of what you can achieve. But for me, it's always been the guiding principle has been, what do I like to do? And uh, what are some high level attributes of the things I like to do? So Pretty much since I started working, um, I've been a big fan of new product development. Back then, innovation as a function was not a thing. Entering new markets, breaking into new segments, uh, and I did that pretty much my whole career strategy. So that was one element of it. And then the other thing I knew I liked was I like being in technologically forward companies, and I like to see the impact of my work actually playing out in real life. So uh, I feel like I had some version of that vision clear from the beginning. I certainly did not know I would be getting into payments or innovation as a role uh, when I started. But um, I started off, uh, you know, I, I finished my degree in economics in India, and then I joined a really great company, which I think a lot of people in the HR space might be aware of. It's called the Corporate Executive Board, CEB, which eventually got brought over by Gartner a few years ago. Even things like the Challenger sale and some of the really great pieces of content on leadership, management, uh, we used to work on all of that. So joined their offices back in India, um, helped turn that into a profit center. And then uh, about 2010, I was working on this project for, look, we have this massive office in India and we have a big office in Australia. Should we start something in the middle, say Singapore, to uh, you know have a regional headquarters? And I left uh, for business school, um, giving the recommendation that yes, we should open up an office, a regional headquarters in Singapore. Um, when I finished my business school degree, they basically came back to me and said, hey, you know what, we're opening that office. Do you want to be one of the guys who started? So I had the privilege in, privilege in 2011 of joining CEB to start our AP headquarters. Amazing ride all the way through acquisition. It's just a fantastic company to work for. And then uh, somewhere 2013, I joined Deloitte. And um, 
it was interesting. Like this is how I kind of started getting into this innovation as a, a profession thing because uh, I joined Deloitte Analytics and uh, this was something that was set up in Singapore with the Singapore government actually. But we quickly realized that the you know traditional consulting way of approaching projects is not going to work for uh, for analytics and big data projects. So then we started using tools like design thinking um, and agile methods to actually do some of these projects. And that way of doing things pretty much spun off into its own business line called the Deloitte Greenhouse, which I was leading for Southeast Asia. And then in 2015, Visa came calling and they said, hey, we want to start a innovation function in Asia Pac based in our headquarters in Singapore and uh, to build an innovation center there, our first innovation center outside of the US, would you be interested? Um, best decision I ever made. And so I spent uh, a long time in the Singapore uh, innovation center. And then uh, around a year and a half or so ago, the opportunity came up to build and lead the innovation function for Semia region. And uh, it's such an exciting opportunity. I couldn't give it up and uh, lo and behold. Um, it sounds like a fascinating journey. I'm, I'm particularly interested in, um, what was it, if we go back to the Deloitte Greenhouse stuff, that one thing I'm always interested in is, um, you know, especially when we're sort of moving into an era of more sort of corporate innovation, um, perhaps more creativity coming into the corporate process. What is it, what is it about the um, sort of design thinking principles and, and that approach to solving problems that were previously perhaps not solved in a satisfactory way? Um, what was it about that approach that made it successful? And I'd also be interested to find out how, um, how challenging it was to perhaps sell this into to, 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 to businesses back then. So. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And look, we're talking about the early 2010s here, right? So believe it or not, things were very different back then. And uh, like I'm, I, I can tell you, like when I said that I'm going to join something like this, like I think we were in Singapore, one of the first two or three innovation labs, and I'm doing air quotes here to get started. And so much skepticism for my network that, Oh yeah, you know what? The first headwinds from the economy and you guys are going to get shut down. What is this? Do you guys even do anything? What is an innovation lab supposed to do? And by the way, I still see that skepticism in some pocket somewhere, but guess what? I've been in that space for now eight years and uh, it's, 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 it's a fantastic profession and I feel like I've made a lot of impact and um, you know, my skills have definitely been appreciated and the way we do things in innovation centers have, have been appreciated. So especially back then, enormous skepticism. Um, but what what's you know we still went against the tide we still try to do a lot of these projects what what we realized is that the first time you want to sell into a client or you know even internal or external client that this should be the methodology you apply not this old school pyramid way of doing things but a agile centric user centric way extreme skepticism but you do it once and you do it right fundamentally they're going to change uh, their perception of you after that and at this time also what started happening is, um, in addition to us, teams like mine and Deloitte doing a lot of these projects, um, a whole host of innovation labs were cropping up around the world. Uh, now I think I would imagine virtually all of the Fortune 500 have an innovation and or digital transformation function. But that started getting commonplace then. Design thinking, which was considered like something arcane is now very commonplace. Everyone knows what you're talking about. So when you tell people, I'm gonna, my job is to approach this project with design thinking as a method, people get it. I don't have to sell it in any longer. And then uh, I think the biggest thing that they saw is the competitors and even the people within the incumbents that were using some of these tools were fundamentally more successful. 
Think about it, all the disruptive startups of the early and mid 2000s, none of them had this old school pyramid way of doing things. They release things in cycles of six to eight weeks, not in one and a half to three years. And um, the larger companies saw that. And um, most of the companies also had digital functions, started launching apps, and they saw that, wow, you know, this iterative, agile, user-centric way, it actually works. And uh, I think that's why we are here today, not because uh, people have gotten used to hearing the word innovation lab or innovation as a function, but because these things have actually shown results over the years. To, to put a sort of a marker in for 2010, I think I was working for a company in 2010 that, that still used Lotus Notes. Um, so <laughs> I'll still look at how that sort of feels. Um, and I, I think it is interesting, particularly how innovation labs have changed. I remember when that first sort of wave was kicking off in Singapore. I think there was, I, I, I feel like a lot of it was hit and miss because people didn't really understand what they were trying to do. They, they were like, they're like I, everybody else has an innovation lab. We need to innovate. So let's just build an innovation lab and, and then innovation will happen and i think what's been really interesting across the journey is that how the the sort of um, the discipline of, of of corporate innovation has really has really taken a lot of um, interesting aspects from both the, the sort of technology startups design thinking agile principles and sort of brought it all together in a way that that uh, businesses can actually um, apply it in a corporate environment which is which has fasc been fascinating to watch so um yeah. this has been even more fascinating fascinating to, to do. Um, so uh, obviously, as you mentioned sort of previously, you've moved from sort of Singapore to, to the Middle East and sort of from my sort of fairly limited exposure to the Middle East so far, there seems to be a number of comparisons, you know, sort of population, um, the sort of smartphone penetration, sort of age, um, you know, unbanked proportion of the of the population sort of dynamics. And so there are some broad sort of uh, similarities. But I guess what are your what were your initial impressions of, of, of the of the, the comparison between the, the two markets? When you yeah, I mean, it, it look, uh, it depends on how you compare them. And if you just compare the innovation of, uh, frontiers, right? Um, I think, like, especially if I do say a Singapore to Middle East comparison, very specifically, one of the things I find happens a lot in the Middle East is there is a lot more focus on specific technologies. Like they will go big in, uh, you know, we want to take AI or we want to take blockchain and everything then is about AI or blockchain. Whereas in Singapore, I think the mindset is a bit different. They say that we want to do something with a sector like FinTech, right? And they want to go build a, a very good Petri dish with very favorable conditions for not to, for people to come and build a technology, but for people to come and build different types of business models and get all sorts of government subsidies and funding to do that, which I think is awesome. Um, so I, I would think uh, that is one difference. Like it's it's not, in, in the East, it's less about the technology, more about, you know, the change in itself, um, the cultural change, the social change that it uh, brings. In the Middle East, what I see, what is less in the East now in many ways is uh, potential. Right. Uh, there is like, especially in my line of work, there is still so much cash in the system in many markets. There is still a lot of uh, small merchants who don't know anything about digital payments. Sure, COVID-19 has changed that, but I think the potential to innovate and the potential to really change lives in this region is just mind blowing. And that's one of the things that excites me. And it's great that we have, you know, governments like in Dubai and uh, in the UAE, many other nations where they're really putting their backs towards building incubators, accelerators, uh, sandbox environments where innovators can flourish. 
so how, how would you sort of describe the sort of current state of the if we look at sort of particularly payments i know that you know cash is cash is still very much king here and it's it's a very cash driven society how do you see the sort of state of the payments industry um what what needs to happen for this to continue to, to transform from a, a cash base to a cashless sort of market? actually it, it depends on what you look at it uh, i mean what uh you know slices and dices you do so for example egypt and morocco if you're looking at the middle east yes cash would still be quite predominant there but if you look at the uae ksa uh, kuwait bahrain actually these uh, you know cash is no longer king in any of these markets uh, especially after covid uh, not only have they moved away big time from cash they've actually moved into contactless payments in a way that was unprecedented and i don't mean just your tap to card but i think the whole focus on hygiene uh, has made people a lot more comfortable with things like going away from cash on delivery for to you know ordering stuff and paying with your card and having it come over, paying uh, you know through P2P channels, paying um, with your mobile phone by tapping it to terminals. So uh, actually, uh, this part of the world is really leading the way in terms of contactless uh, uh, penetration, and we're only going to see more of that happening. Interesting, and um, I, it's sort of interesting to break down the, the the different regions i guess if we look at um sort of the 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 emirates and around around this sort of space it seemed to be quite a bit more advanced you've mentioned sort of some of the incubators and some of the work that's being done um what what what, what do you see particularly in this this industry that's that's exciting um, um, can you sort of pick out any particular sort of use cases of, of businesses that are doing some really exciting stuff or um you know sort of uh, uh, particular initiatives that are gaining gaining a lot of traction here yeah i mean it, 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 just like if I had to pick one, it, actually, let me pick two. One is e-commerce, sheer e-commerce, right? So if we look at uh, e-commerce volumes and the growth of e-commerce here, uh, like in, I'm talking about, say, UAE and KSA over the last, uh, since the pandemic, it's been high double digits in many cases, right? Just the sheer number of transactions that we're seeing that are now going to e-commerce, huge. By the way, this is despite the fact that in all the markets I've talked about, most commerce still happens in bricks and mortar stores so those are that's that segment the physical stores are still well and good yet e-commerce is you know growing at unprecedented rates so e-commerce is definitely something we're very passionate about we've i'll give you an example which is in public domain we've got this really great partnership with noon which we kicked off right at the beginning of the pandemic uh, that basically uh, takes people away from cash on delivery and gives them other solutions that uh, let them pay digitally, but get the same level of security and uh, comfort that they do when they pay only after they've cited the goods. Um, so e-commerce e is the one thing. And the second thing related to that is it's not just the big e-commerce players uh, that are innovating. There's this entire fleet of what I like to call e-commerce middleware that's cropping up, especially after COVID, that can do so much for our region. And we love working with these guys too. So I'll give you an example. When the pandemic hit, uh, Carrefour, for example, saw a 300% increase in their online orders. Now that puts tremendous pressure on their, you know, the supply chains, the logistic process, the delivery people, and you know, surely enough, there would be delays. There would be things, uh, you know, that go awry. But while those physical retail giants were struggling trying to meet that online demand an outcropping of players like now now and uh, you know noon daily and all these uh, you know delivery players came about right out of the blue that helped bridge that gap so you can order digitally and get your stuff from carrefour 
And uh, Carrefour is really happy because it's relieving the pressure on them to deliver everything. You're really happy as a customer because you're getting things fast and you're getting things, uh, you know, with high delivery standards. And of course, the intermediary in the middle, which is the noon daily or now now, what have you, is building a new business model for themselves. So just the sheer like rapid innovation that's happening. And we, of course, we have to support all these players, right? From authorization to clearing to settlement of payments, all of that has to happen in this value chain. So for me, e-commerce and the, you know, the crop of ancillary industries that have been built in this new digital world is really exciting. Interesting. I was, um, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of any uh, sort of a, a payments kind of a digital escrow kind of sort of service. I, you know, there's a lot of cash on delivery in, in, in um, sort of Southeast Asia or you buy, but I, I haven't seen there a, uh, a sort of, you know, that kind of digital escrow service for, for, um, uh, for, for cash. So that's, oh that's my not... God. It's so <laughs> funny you ask that. Uh, by the way, for every, anyone hearing this, this, this part is not scripted. He didn't set me up for this at all. None of it is, but, uh, um, so I actually have a patent for exactly that. Um, <laughs> literally it's like, and it's one of the solutions I'm most passionate about. And we, we built this thing in 2018. Uh, I, I call it the pre-auth solution because you, patents have to have a technical term, right? The pre-authorization. Yeah. So it, it's very similar, and, and you use the term escrow, it's exactly that. It's, it's the pre-auth is very similar to what happens when you're at a hotel, right? You check in, they take a swipe of your card just as a pre-authorization. They say they charge $500. They're not going to take that money out of your account, but they have the authorization too in case you raid the minibar and bail, right? So that way, you know, your the merchant is protected, but at the same time, you know, if you do decide to raid the minibar, you don't have to worry about, oh, I got to stand in a checkout line and got to do all those things at the end of it. So the same thing should apply to cash on delivery, right? Where if you are a sm small merchant selling to me on a online marketplace, you should have the comfort that, you know, I'm not going to say I'll pay on delivery and then take your goods and just not pay. So you get a pre-authorized escrow. I, on the other hand, as the consumer, know that, um, you know, if I don't like this thing, I can return it. And they'll just cancel the pre-authorization. Uh, pre it's not like they've deducted any money from my uh, system. So yeah, I think all these creative kind of solutions where we use learnings from very different business models, all of these things are going to help with uh, moving away from cash, especially in the world of e-commerce. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And um, you've um, you've mentioned obviously that your 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 remit is Simia, which is you know sort of starting in sort of Central Europe, ninety two markets. Um, I want to ask a really sort of silly, um, really silly question. So, which one's your favourite? Um, <laughs> and also, um, you know, just uh, that's a little bit flippant, but um, also, you know, how how do you manage uh, how do you manage a, a sort of portfolio that broad? And you know, is it a fairly sort of common trend across all of all of the markets they're all kind of at the same sort of space or what's how, how do you get it and i appreciate i've snapped my questions there so excellent so let me let me ask answer the first question first so I, I can't play favorites but what i will say is that coming to my role the markets that blew my mind completely were russia and some of the cis markets like ukraine and the reason why is you know i came from a very developed and innovative banking market singapore but the level of banking innovation, and I'm not saying neo banks, I'm talking traditional, you know, incumbent bank innovation that I've seen in Russia, Ukraine, unparalleled, comparable to nothing else I've seen among the banks anywhere else. Like, um, just you think about, you think of it, and Spare Bank or a Privat Bank in Ukraine have done it. You know, um, yes. I, like one of the funniest examples that struck me when I landed there. You know, you go around many cities in the world and you see the you know, the 
mobility devices like the scooters and those shared bicycles and they've got all some cool startup that's enabling all of that in russia you'll see vtv bank and the name of the big banks written on those cycles the banks are enabling the sharing economy at that level of innovation um, some of these banks have had you know launched super apps already that are functioning in the market including uh, in russia there's one in uh, the ukraine we actually launched with privat bank their super app called privat 24 it's a marketplace and they have 70 percent of the country's population banking with them um, the other examples are you know if you just look at um, everything from p2p payments remittances um, almost that wechat level of pay anyone for any service uh, do everything through one platform it's all been done there and um, like i have so much like every time i go back to russia interact with our clients we have so much to learn from them and when you look at the typical literature on the world where the banks, uh, the innovative banks are, somehow Russia just gets left off. But trust me, it's got the richest learnings, at least in my career, that I've had there. And I think on the other extreme, uh, Africa, right, literally geographically in my territory as well, um, you've, I, I've seen the most incredible innovation happen with the most bare bones technology in countries like Kenya and uh, Nigeria. Um, I think my favorite example, and this is a very common a collaborator of ours, we do a lot of work with them, Safaricom, the guys who run M-Pesa. Now M-Pesa runs or uh, operates about 70, the equivalent of 70% of Kenya's GDP on a solution that doesn't even require smartphones. You can do it on a feature phone. Now that to me is innovation. It's not about, about the technology, it's just the way they thought. And so for me, it's exciting that I get to work with them. I learn from them. We help, you know, make an impact in things that will change the lives for millions of people in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So yeah, it's, it's hard to pick favorites, but just to show you like, this is the, you know, spectrum yeah. of exciting things I get to see. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, I, um, I've sort of been working on an idea that I think, you know, as, as the, the, the economies of the Middle East grow and it's the, the requirement for um, sort of interesting technologies and technologies to to grow in the region happens i think that you know traditionally um a lot of people look west for for, for talent and solutions and for businesses but i think when you talk about you know I, I sort of mentioned recently to to somebody it's one of the interesting things about technology solutions that have been built in emerging markets is that they've been built on emerging markets infrastructure um and yeah. there are there are things that you've had to work around constraints that you don't have in more developed markets which are then perhaps more analogous to other emerging markets so that's that's fascinating to hear and i'm i'm, I'm still sort of reading a little bit on the uh, on the russia <laughs> on the russia front having 70 percent of the countries sort of bank with you and then creating an app that's um it's yeah, almost that's, that's ukraine privat bank from ukraine They're close oh, partners of ours and yeah, incredible sure. incredible work they do there and so to, to talk to me a little bit about how you know how does the the visa innovation department work with your clients what what is it that you that you actually go in and do sort of physically or not physically digitally but however yeah. it's a manifest yeah so interestingly enough i would say about 80 percent of our work or 70 percent of our work is actually with the partners so it's not within visa it's uh with you know the safari comms like mobile network operators fintechs banks merchants uh, those kind of partners in our ecosystem because we are a network business right so we don't go like visa has never issued your card believe it or not uh, it's the banks who have or the fintech who has um, and neither has visa directly accepted your payments it's a acquirer and a merchant who's on our network so it's critical for us to like open innovation is the only way we can innovate 
Um, and so it's all about partnering the ecosystem. Um, my function has three main aims. The first is to, as we talked about, build the future of payments with our clients and partners in this diverse region. The second one is to evangelize our own innovation narrative and capabilities across the world. And I'll talk to you about what that means uh, in a second. And the third one is uh, to make Visa's own product development more user-centric, more agile and faster. So the, I think the first and last are pretty straightforward. Those are the actual engagements we run where teams of our designers, engagement managers, developers run six to eight week sprints with our partners and our clients to actually build prototypes, sometimes pilots and proofs of um, and actual in, uh, production uh, outputs as well. And you know, getting it all the way from, hey, let's do something together to a press release. And there's uh, heaps of examples of those. Um, but the second one, which I mentioned was, you know, to evangelize and um, form our own innovation narrative. So we physically operate innovation centers. Uh, Visa does globally. We have three in the Simia region. And uh, one of the things you can always do there is as a client or a partner or a government, you can physically go over to our innovation center. And we have a team of people who will actually take you through what it would be like to go in the day in the life of someone um, four years from now in a world enabled by payments innovation through Visa, right? So you can literally, you know, you get to download your own super app and then you're doing everything from your, you're in your home and you're authorizing your Alexa to purchase, um, you know, a refill of your electronic vacuum pods. And then, you know, you're in a transit situation and you're just tapping your phone to enter the you know, Metro. And then you're at a small merchant whom you pay with QR or at a high-end merchant whom you just uh, pay with a walk-in walk-out experience with no payments, try on augmented reality, get into a car and we actually literally have a physical car called the connected car where you can make payments, uh, just your tolls, of course, but order ahead, all those kind of things. Um, and those are just a few of the use cases. So we actually, we don't believe in just publishing white papers and talking about, you know, this is what innovation could look like. It's physical. There are actually these, like in Dubai, we're just launching a new innovation center that's gonna be um, 8,000 square feet in our new building um, in Dubai. And uh, you can come in there and experience what the future would be like uh, firsthand. So um, a lot of it is building this stuff, but also building the real Petri dish where you can make things real, try out prototypes, share them with the world. That's also part of our job. And um, yeah, that's what we have in the physical centers. And um, how much do you, do you sort of, Obviously, I mean, it, it sounds it sounds incredible than having that sort of um, that sort of physical manifestation of the innovations and being able to sort of prototype and to be able to interact with with people. It, it, do you do you get out in the field as well as 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 it were? Do you sort of you know think to go and speak to sort of shopkeepers from <laughs> sort of small villages or kind of you know or, or sort of how how can you sort of get out to these people? Is that is that All part of the, the, the journey as well? Actually, literally, that is I would say one of the most important parts of the journey. I mean, if you're going to be human-centric in your approach, you've got to be out there pounding the pavement, talking to humans, building that empathy. No shortcuts for it. My, in my career at Visa, some of my richest experiences were, you know, when I was like in a small town, uh, in, in a tiny merchant's hut in a small town in Thailand, interviewing them and understanding why they don't like QR codes. Or, you know, when I was uh, with my team in India, literally in the wake of demonetization, where 86% of the physical currency had just vanished. And, uh, you know, working through uh, the chaos of that, uh, those times. So the process that we have, the co-creation process uh, has four stages, discover, design, develop, and deploy. 
The discover phase is precisely about this. Walk in their shoes. What are the pain points? What are the unmet needs, the aspirations, challenges? Validate a few prototypes while you're there. We do it all the time. We're in shops talking to small merchants, observing how they go around doing their business. We go to the homes of users to understand not just how they make payments, but how do they do everything around that, manage their finances, reconcile uh, how much they've spent versus how much they've earned, everything. Um, and then, of course, we spend a lot of time uh, interviewing our people. So uh, interviewing our, our customers, virtually all of my team members have uh, a lot of experience in running primary research, in doing ethnographic interviews. And that's the most critical thing. You, ha you, you have an innovation center to show what you've built. You have an innovation center to bring clients over and do the design and develop part of your co-creation. But you have to get out there and do the discovery yourself. No substitutes for that. With regards to the, the sort of payments in the fintech industry slightly broader in the, in, 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 let's sort of talk about this part of the Middle East. Um, you know, my, my experiences and the sort of, um, the feedback I've had from a number of people that I've spoken to is that the banking uh, system here is still is still quite archaic. You know, they're, they're just in many ways. You know, I know there are a couple of few neo banks that are kicking off and, and growing here, but a, a lot of the traditional banks here still are very manual process driven. You know, labor is cheap, so there's no huge driver to push them into digital transformation up until this point, perhaps. Um, what, what do you think is going to be there's sort of the 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 the, the scenery in a, in say three to five years time um, on that sort of banking scene because I think globally fintech has come on in such leaps and bounds in so many different markets that there are many of the um, the, the the findings of other markets that you can bring here which might end up putting a lot of these banks just out of out of business altogether. Um, uh, I sort of tie that back to a point you made earlier. I think that the um, in emerging markets, I think that banks with a well-known brand do have a very good opportunity to to front run some some of the fintech if they can get the products out to the market because they have the the name that people sort of recognize and that they trust. Um, but do you think they're really at threat here? I think you know there are over 50 banks in 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 just in the UAE alone. Um, do you think they're really at threat at the moment if they don't digitize quickly enough? And do you think do you think they can? Hmm. So here's, you're right, this region is unique. I wouldn't say the banks here are less innovative than they are anywhere else. Like, you'd be surprised, uh, Sam, like I've had clients who are like on the bleeding edge of innovation. I, I'm, I'm talking outside the UAE. Yet their core banking systems were COBOL pieces built in the 1960s. I'm not making this up. So you, I've seen that a lot. So um, what I think there's definitely, there should be more of, and I, I feel like there soon will be, is the you know the strength of the challenger bank and uh, fintech community i think you know if i compare it to say a singapore or london it's not as uh, rich here yet but i think that's going to change uh, and because that uh, you know the startup the fintech ecosystem hasn't matured that much i'm actually quite impressed to see a lot of the neo banks having uh, been born out of the, the large banks the incumbents right so if you look at uh, what Emirates NBD has done with LibBank. I mean, those guys are amazing. I know Jayesh who runs that and what the work these guys have done to just transform the landscape and to build a live profitable Neo bank in this region is amazing. Mastrek has done that with Neo uh, as well. There's a couple of others that you will know of in Saudi and uh, other parts of the Middle East too. So I actually feel like uh, the, the core traditional banks have taken on that mantle that we will you know, out innovate ourselves, and they've that's a really bold thing to do, and they've done it quite successfully 
um, in, in that space. I do know also of a, a few aspirational neo banks that want to be doing business in the Middle East, and I think uh, very soon we'll see a lot more of them. And I mean, just the amount of, of focus that the government has been putting on fintech here, uh, I think that's going to change a lot of things because fintech only Singapore only became known for fintech when the government decided we want to be the uh, fintech capital of the world, and so they have. And in five years, they did that. I think where that will exists, and I'm seeing more and more of it here, is just a matter of time. And I guess sort of what you know, from a, if we sort of cast cast the eye forward, I guess sort of in a general fintech perspective, um, what are your I guess sort of hot picks? What are your you know? Do you, I would want to use the term predictions because that that sort of is a so perhaps a slightly binary phrase. But um, you know, what are your sort of hot picks for what's coming up? What 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 are you most excited about in the in the in the region over the next over the next couple of years? Uh, okay, let me consult my crystal ball first. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, personal opinion only, right? So a few of the trends which I think we will start seeing a lot more of here are, for for example, buy now, pay later, right? We've seen uh, in Australia, starting in Australia, then in Europe and uh, with Affirm and the likes in uh, the US and increasingly in the markets in Asia Pacific, that's really become a trend. And I, it, it started gaining steam in this part of the world, but I think 2021 might be a year where um, that really hits us. And uh, from my perspective, I want to be make sure that Visa has a installment solution, our installment solution well ready and poised for when that uh, does happen, culturally speaking. So I think buy now, pay later is something great. Um, blockchain, um, you know, it, it, it's not going to go away. Like, uh, it, it's, it's not something that's going to die down in hype. Even if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have said blockchain. But the way people are understanding blockchain and its application is becoming only more mature every year. So, for example, we use blockchain in a uh, in a product called B2B Connect, which makes a merchant to merchant or you know your business to business remittances way faster, way cheaper, and requiring way less points of integration because it uses the blockchain. So we we are seeing a lot of potential in that, and uh, you know other businesses are as well, especially for those low volume, high value kind of transactions. I think there's huge potential. Um, I think the whole aspect of central bank digital currencies, I don't know if we'll see here, or see one here, again, personal opinion, but at least that uh, there will be progress in the thinking of that topic. Um, and yeah, I think real-time payments is another one, uh, real-time payments, possibly cross-border real-time payments, something of deep interest to Visa. We've made uh, partnerships and investments with the likes of Perthport, which is a large uh, provider of uh, uh, you know, B2B uh, cross-border payments and the like. Um, MFS in Africa as well. So I think, uh, yeah, if I were to pick these three, like blockchain, uh, buy now, pay later, real-time payments, including cross-border payments, I think these are three trends that will really gather steam this year. Because I've been in this space a long time, um, I, what I have come to accept is, you know, the, to the question you asked me, like, what are some of the trends? What are the technologies? That's the number one question I get asked a lot, right? What technologies are disruptive? What trends are going to, you know, change the world? I think all that's great, but try not to focus too much on the technologies try to focus on the culture and the mindset first um, that's what i've realized like when i look at the governments that have innovated successfully when i look at the companies that have genuinely orchestrated digital transformations they didn't do that on the back of a technology or a trend they did that on the back of a concerted effort to change the way people think to most importantly change the way they build and produce stuff um, and wherever I see that being the emphasis as opposed to one or two technologies, that's where I'm like, yeah, okay, these guys 
are in it for the long run and they will likely meet long-term success as well. So, um, you know, I, I, that would be my biggest thing. Focus on building the right culture, focus on building the right toolkit for how to innovate because the technologies are going to come and go, but your ability to leverage them and, you know, change with the times, that's what's going to make you stay. I think it is, um, it's a, a well-known sort of, um, sort of almost sort of misindexing, but a sort of a um, people often, as you write, people often get sort of they concentrate on the shiny thing, and they're missing, they're missing what the shiny thing is enabling, um, and they're missing what that sort of um, that's actually the, what the actual change is that they talk about technology. So, so very, very good point, well made. Excellent. Uh, I'm also really interested to um, see what. Um, Middle East specific um, solutions come out of this because obviously that you know there are broad sort of parallels with some regions emerging markets regions and things like that but obviously there's a, a very large sort of cultural overlay on that and I'll be really interested to see how um, yeah, especially like before. seeing the way the governments have been taking up the mantle and I mean you probably saw the uh, recent announcement from Saudi on open banking that kind of stuff yeah. happens here so frequently and I think there's a real awakening happening among the government, the academia, the industry in this part of the world. So I'm as excited as you are. Now that brings us on to the final uh, portion of the podcast, which always sounds incredibly flippant after such deep, deep and sort of interesting <laughs> and meaningful content, um, which is the quick fire question round. Um, I presume you are prepared and you're ready for the, uh, for the, for the, the ordeal that is the quick fire question round. Let's do it. Excellent. So we'll um, we'll start there. So um, the first one is what's what's the best advice that you've been that you've been given? I think the best advice I've been given is whatever you can accomplish yourself, if you work with the right people, you can accomplish several times that, no matter what you think. Um, so yeah, being uh, being someone who works on relationships, on collaboration, uh, definitely that's the best advice. One that I've taken to heart at least. Amazing. Um, and where will you go? Um, what's the first place you're going to visit once once the COVID travel restrictions have been lifted in? I think realistically speaking, I'll go back to India and uh, you know say hi to the family. Uh, but not including home, I think the first place I'd like to go back to would be um, either Russia for a business trip and meet some of my team there and just like walk the streets. I love that country. Or go back, uh, you know, with the family to someplace like Georgia. Who I've been meaning to take them there. What's your most obscure hobby? I collect masks from all over the world and I have a wall where they are, are all exhibited and it makes for some pretty dramatic wall art. <laughs> okay. I, I, we're talking pre-COVID masks? I'm guessing, <laughs> oh, I, I, no. <laughs> yes, definitely pre-COVID masks. Like, <laughs> oh dear, yeah. I, I, actually, you know what? I haven't been mask shopping since COVID, so now it might turn out to be yeah. a very confusing thing for people when I go around asking for masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, your sort of search criteria on Google is going to probably have to change a bit. Isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Cut through, cut through all of this house. Um, what is your favorite terrible management slogan? Um, as, ah. as I said, mine is when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. There you go. I think for me, it's been, I heard this early in my career. There are two rules uh, to being successful on the job. Rule one, Never make your boss look bad. Rule two, never forget rule one. I mean, when I was told this, I thought, wow, that, that sounds awesome. But it's just so madman-esque and it's antiquated. It's just terrible <laughs> advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Well, I believe it to be true. I'm pretty sure no one would think it's, but I, I, 
you may not know this about me but i just can't watch sports like people assume i would like cricket i don't i don't like watching any kind i just don't get it i i don't understand how people <laughs> get so motivated watching another group of people play against another group of people neither of whom they have any connection to so uh yeah it's it's bizarre but Did that's an idiosyncrasy okay 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 I can, I can I can understand sort of it's test match cricket that you get two two groups of guys standing around for five days and still it not could be the World Cup final and I would probably not care at all. I just <laughs> can't get myself to feel invested in it. Yeah. And um, the last one, what part of the future are you most excited about? I think I'm excited about uh, if we look at the you know the last six months since the pandemic, I feel like there's been a bit of a zeitgeist about responsible growth that you know the the, it's, the Milton Friedman school of thought is out of the window that the corporation's only purpose is to make profits. Um, and I, I'm excited where that takes us, you know, like an era of greater equality, an era where, you know, all of us are not just focused on one or two things, but like genuinely for the good of humanity and not by, you know, personal will, but through KPI. And I feel like that's happening. Like I know Visa has been taking this thing really seriously and our CEO keeps talking about our multiple stakeholders, which are not just the shareholders, but also, um, you know, the communities in which we operate, our employees, all of those uh, things. So that's what I'm really excited about to see where uh, I hope this sustains globally and takes us to a new era for inclusion. Amazing. And I, I, I um, yeah, I, it's been interesting seeing the, the effects of COVID on how people are, are viewing business and viewing sort of I guess sort of the existence of business and things like that and I think it's given a lot of people sort of cause and time to reflect on 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 the you know on the mission and what they're actually doing and how important it is and being able to change that to to, to actually making it more impactful and more um uh, sort of a you know more sort of broadly um just for, for the good of humanity which has been which has been very nice to see indeed Thanks again for listening to this episode of Emerging Markets Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. On our next episode, I am thrilled to welcome Debbie Watkins, the CEO of exciting fintech startup Lucy. Lucy aims to help underrepresented female entrepreneurs succeed in business through providing tailored services and support. Please join us as Debbie shares her fascinating experiences working in microfinance across emerging markets and the company vision as they grow to support one of the most poorly served markets in the world. There were lots of banks who did not want to lend to this segment at all. Too much hassle, um, quote unquote, they didn't want these kind of people cluttering up their ATMs. I'm not joking, it was actually said to me once. Until then, stay safe and farewell. <laughs>